Well, if you keep your Bibles open, please, um, we'll be looking at this passage to begin with. Um, we have a lot to do this evening uh, because we're not only going to look at that text, but then we're going to see um, how the uh, Genesis 2 text is used in the New Testament. Um, and so uh, we're going to cover more ground than we have in the, my past two messages. It was limited just to a paragraph. So, a um, little more of a challenge this evening. A few years ago, we were inundated with news about a scandal concerning the President of the United States. And my purpose here is certainly not to discuss any of the allegations, the issues, but to actually uh, to reflect on what Americans repeatedly said in response to reporters' questions when asked if the sexual allegations were true, would it affect their view of the way the president did the job of running the government? Again, I'm not concerned about that particular issue. It's more interesting to see the broader reflections here. Repeatedly, what I heard was this response, what someone does in their personal life has nothing to do with other parts of their life. It's very, very uh, tightly compartmentalized, uh, so uh, wh- whatever it may be, uh, uh, you may sin, you may ha- have an aspect of your life, and uh, it doesn't affect the rest of your being, if you will. Uh, apparently a significant, indeed large percentage of Americans uh, thought this way. Even before the news of uh, Clinton's situation, many Americans apparently already held the view that we can compartmentalize parts of our lives where sin occurs and put it in a closet and it will not affect other parts of our lives. Compartmentalization. This evening I want to ask what happens to us when we begin to think that sins in one area of our life do not affect other areas of our life. What happens to us when we don't relate parts of our lives to God and to his word, such as relating the word to the marriage relationship? What happens to us when we think about God and his word only For example, Sunday at church and the other days of the week, we don't think too much about it. Um, We take no thought of the Lord. Genesis 3 tells us what happens when we isolate parts of our lives from God and his word. We'll also see how this affects marriage. Now, in Genesis 2, 15 to 25, that Ryan uh, read, we have to ask, what is the purpose of man and woman coming together? And... So let's focus on that. Look at uh, chapter 2 again and verse 15. It says there, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, what is this saying? Well, uh, I think it's saying, as we're going to see, that humanity was created not just to be a farmer's, and gardeners, but ultimately to worship God by serving and obeying Him. say, really? Verse 15 looks like gardening to me. It says uh, He put him in the garden to cultivate it and to keep that garden. Well, while I do think that phrase in verse 15, to, uh, to cultivate, by the way, it can just mean serve sometimes, and some commentators think that that's what it means. But I do think it means cultivate here, but that second word, to keep it, that word can also be translated as guard it. So to cultivate and to guard that garden. Now, when these two words, this word for cultivate and guard, when they're used in Hebrew, intriguingly, they're not gardening terms at all. It just means to serve and obey. Moses uses this combination about eight times in the first five books of the Bible, and without exception, it has to do with uh, serving God, uh, not serving the ground. And um, in fact, it's very interesting that about 35 times in the Old Testament, this combination uh, of these two Hebrew words occurs, and they're never gardening terms. Uh, they refer sometimes to Israel serving and obeying God. For example, in Deuteronomy 10, 11 to 14. And uh, several times it refers to the Levitical priest serving and obeying God in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now, as I said, I do think that uh, 
what we have here in this first word is a gardening term. Um, and yet, what's the context of this gardening term? And what does it mean to guard the garden? I don't think it means just to, to keep it, I don't think it's synonymous, just another term of gardening. In fact, look with me at chapter 3. When Adam is uh, jettisoned from the garden, chapter 3, verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him, that is Adam, out from the garden of Eden to cultivate it, same verb as in 2.15, from which he was taken. So I think the idea of cultivation is in mind. Verse 24, so he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The cherubim were not gardeners. They were to guard that garden sanctuary. So this, this idea of guarding is more than just uh, gardening. It, is, it, it has to do with, with protecting this garden sanctuary. And by the way, that it was a sanctuary, in fact a temple. I don't know, some of you may have been here a few years ago. I took quite a bit of time to talk about why the Garden of Eden was a sanctuary. Why it was a temple. I've written a book on it, in fact. It's called The Temple and the Church's Mission. But uh, uh, at, the, at the end of talking about why... Uh, I think the Garden of Eden was a temple, just looking at Genesis 2 and 3. I then went to Ezekiel, and uh, there it just says explicitly that the Garden of Eden was a temple. It talks uh, about a person being in the Garden uh, of Eden, and then in verse 17, uh, it talks about that person sinning. Uh, Some think it's an angel who sinned. I think it probably was Adam, but I'm not going to get into that tonight. My only point is to, to see here that in fact Scripture explicitly sees the Garden of Eden as a sanctuary. In chapter 28 of Ezekiel in verse uh, 18 it says, by the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade you profaned your sanctuaries. That, that word sanctuaries is a plural word used for Israel's one temple because there were different compartments in it. Different, uh, there was the courtyard that was sacred, more sacred was the holy place, and even more sacred was the uh, holy of holies. And so likewise, uh, uh, just as Israel's uh, temple was called plural sanctuary, so is the Garden of Eden. And what that means is that even Adam's gardening, you see, is a priestly activity, an activity of serving and to guard that garden. For example, he was to keep unclean things out of the garden. And we know an unclean thing did come into the garden. And as we will see, he didn't do a very good job of guarding. It's interesting if you look at the Bible of the time, at the time of Jesus called uh, uh, the, uh, the Aramaic Targum. It's just the translation of Hebrew into Aramaic. That when the Jews translated chapter 2 and 15... Uh, they translated it this way, that Adam would do service according to the law and keep its commandments. Um, and uh, other Aramaic translations had the same. So they had this idea. They were, early on there was this interpretation of, of Adam serving God, not just being a, a gardener. He was a gardener, but that was a priestly activity that Adam was to perform. So it's hard to believe that Moses could write these words and not have in mind the notion of uh, Adam as a priest in a sanctuary. In fact, if we were to look more closely at Ezekiel 28, that being who's cast out of the garden because of sin has all these jewels on him. And those jewels come from Exodus 28, which defines and describes the jewels on the high priest's uh, breastplate. This person was a priest. It's likely, I think, that uh, Adam was construed to be a priest in a garden. So here's the point in chapter 2 and verse 15. Yes, he was a gardener, but uh, as a gardener, that was a priestly activity. And he was to guard that garden, keeping unclean things out. And that was the role of later priests in Israel, to keep unclean things out of the temple. Whether it was people, unclean animals, whatever it might be. But now we have to ask, how was it that Adam was to conduct his role as a priest. How was he to guard that garden? Verses 15 and 16 tell us. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. 
And the idea is this. He was performing his priestly activities, guarding the garden, uh, by learning God's word and applying it. Now, he's only got two verses. After the fall, we have many, many more. Uh, but we're going to see they didn't even do a very good job with just two verses. So the point is that uh, Adam is part of his priestly activity is to learn God's word and to focus on it. So humanity is to serve and obey God by learning and submitting God to God's word. Now, verse 18 says something very interesting. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Alone in what? We've got to go to the context. Alone in being a priest. Alone in serving God by learning and applying his word. It's not good. I'll make him a helper suitable for him, corresponding to him. Adam was in the image of God. He needs someone else in the image of God, corresponding to him as his counterpart to help him in this. And so verses 19 to 20, we see the animals are paraded before him and um, uh, as Ryan read, and of course, none of them uh, were found to be, at the end of verse 20, a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall, takes one of his uh, ribs or part of his side out, creates Eve. In verse 23, the man said, in Hebrew, it's literally, this the now. It's, it's very awkward. It's probably an exclamatory kind of a phrase uh, uh, of, of, of anticipation, perhaps excitement. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24. For this cause, a man will leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. For what cause? You see that phrase there? For this cause, a man will leave. For what cause? For the cause of what's just been talked about. For the cause of being a priest in the sanctuary of God. And for the cause of learning and applying God's word. And the woman is brought to indeed help him in that. And that word for helper is not some kind of janitorial sort of uh, word. It's often used elsewhere of God helping a person when they can't help themselves. This is a very high kind of word. So for what cause will a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife? For the cause of serving God as priests together. And if they do that, then the result of verse 24 is, and they'll become one. They will become one. And so we end with this beautiful open unity. The man and his wife, verse 25, were both naked and were not ashamed. So... What happens? Well, that phrase at the end of verse 25 is very interesting. The man and his wife were both naked. I think it has to do with openness in every area of their relationship. This naked unity, if you want to call it. Not just physically, but in every area of this relationship. Now, if we come back and we focus in Genesis 2, 16 to 17, it's very clear. Three things are very clear. Remember, that was the command, that was the word, the two verses that... God gave Adam and that Eve was to help him with. Number one, they may eat to their hearts content from any tree of the garden except one. Number two, they must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And number three, uh, if they do eat from that tree, they will certainly die. Now, when we come to chapter three, we see how well Adam and Eve fulfill this divine commission of guarding the garden sanctuary by remembering God's word, serving as faithful priests. In verses 1 to 3, we find the beginning failure in carrying out their commission. Look at those verses with me again. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Of course, he's questioning God. And we find that repeated throughout history on into our own time. Indeed. Is what God said is right. That's, that's the implication. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Well, what we find here is the beginning failure in carrying out their commission. Verses 1 to 3 tell us that Satan's deceptive challenge to the truthfulness of God's word exposes Eve's forgetfulness 
of it. It's here that Satan begins to gain his reputation as the great deceiver, and he continues to bear that reputation on into the New Testament. Remember Revelation 12, 9, only one of the places where we find this sort of thing. Quote, the dragon, the serpent of old, is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And that's what he's beginning to do in verse 1. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Notice that the serpent refers to God as God, not the Lord God, because God is not his Lord. The word is chosen very carefully. The serpent's intention was to turn Adam and Eve's allegiance from God's word to his own deceptive word, and it was to attempt to get them not to reflect the image of God, but to reflect his image and for them to be his subjects. This attempt uh, on Satan's part is evident from noticing a word play in Hebrew uh, in chapter 2, verse 25, and chapter 3, and verse 1. Follow me again here. And the man and his wife were both naked. In Hebrew, the word is arum, arumim, naked. 3-1, now the serpent was more arum. These are two different Hebrew words, but they sound almost identical. Why? Is it just accidental? Oh, you have these kind of puns all the time. It's as if if someone had a girlfriend named Sharon and said, because her name is Sharon, she shares. He's making an interpretative pun on her name. The interpretative point in this pun, I think, is to show Satan's intention to destroy their beautiful naked arumim, their beautiful nakedness, through his arum, through his deceptiveness, and to transform their naked unity into the alienation of separation. This is Satan's purpose toward all of us. The only way Satan could pull off such destruction and alienation was through deceptively shifting their allegiance from God's word to his false word, that is, to Satan's false word. Remember that Adam and Eve's naked unity at the end of Genesis 2 came about through their faithful, it was to come about through their faithful learning, remembering God's word as faithful priests. If Satan's going to hurt us, he must first divide us. And this occurs by him causing us not to focus on the importance of God's word. It happened in the first covenant community with the first couple. It continues. He must not only divide us from one another, but deceive us to compartmentalize our lives, divide parts of our lives from other parts to get us not to relate God and his word to parts of our lives. This is why Paul is so concerned uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, don't be deceived as uh, Eve was deceived. And a little bit earlier in chapter 10, he says, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and to the thinking of Jesus Christ. So such an interpretative pun here is likely because there's already a pun earlier in chapter 2. Look at verse 23 again. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. Uh, the rhyming of their names is to indicate their unity. And, uh, and I think it further enhances that we do have an interpretative pun here between the nakedness, the arumim of Adam and Eve and the arum, the craftiness of the serpent. The devil disguises himself and his purposes to deceive us into sin. He never really says, hey, why don't you sin real big today? Now, it's very subtle. It's very subtle, with half-truths. Now in verses 2 to 3, the serpent's challenge exposes Eve's forgetfulness of God's word in Genesis 2, 16 to 17. She forgets God's word. Notice uh, those verses again. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Now the interpretation I'm about to give you, I first read... Uh, uh, in a commentary by Alan Ross. And I recommend this commentary to you. It's called uh, Creation and Blessing, published by Baker Bookhouse. And later on, when we'll see the effects of what's happened to Adam and Eve. Again, Ross is very well, uh, uh, does very well at explaining that, and I'm very indebted to him uh, for my understanding of this passage there and in some other places. But notice what she does here in verse 2. From the, tree, from the trees of the garden, we may eat. What's the problem there? What's the problem? What, what was said? What does she not remember? Freely. You may eat freely. She disparages the privileges 
And I, I don't think it's just, oh, she's paraphrasing, a little innocent leaving out of a word. She underplays God's uh, privilege for them. Secondly, she exaggerates the prohibition. Neither shall you touch it there in verse 3. You shall not eat from it or touch it. God never said don't touch it. She becomes the first Pharisee, the first legalist. The first example, historical example, if you will, of legalism. God never said that. She maximizes the command in a way that God didn't. And that some Christians do that, don't they? Create all kinds of uh, more rules that you need to be spiritual that Scripture doesn't explicit, explicitly lay out. She minimizes the penalty. This is very interesting. Look again at verse 3. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. But that's not what God said. Anybody remember what he said back there? Surely die. In Hebrew, it's you're going to die, die. Dying, you will die. And so the English translation, to make that not sound so awkward, you'll surely die. She said, you'll die. She becomes the first liberal, underplaying judgment. Now, was this intentional? Perhaps... Eve just didn't think God's word was important enough, maybe didn't regard it highly enough. Maybe it was accidental, merely paraphrastic. But if it was, it was significant in what she added and what she left out. I think it caused a distortion of the understanding of God's word. So the serpent's challenge exposes Eve's prior forgetfulness of the word of God. My son uh, is now a journalist in Providence, Rhode Island, But uh, when he was young, he was a toddler, I used to play a game with him which started one evening after we read about Satan's temptations of Christ in the wilderness. Interestingly, um, I played the devil and uh, I acted like I was coming after him. And the only thing that could scare me away was if he quoted one of the verses he had learned. If he didn't, I would tickle him. Sometimes, because of the excitement of the moment, he'd get half the verse out, but it wouldn't work. He had to get the whole verse, and so he would get tickled. He became so enthralled with this game and the principle that when he was watching television with his mom uh, near that time, he saw in a documentary a snake devouring a rabbit on some nature show, and he said, Mommy, the bunny forgot his verses. (laughs) But the lesson was really coming home to him. It was really coming home. In the world of reality... We're often challenged as Christians and called upon to know God's word and apply it. And sometimes we fail and suffer, unfortunately, the consequences. It may be a challenge in various areas. Perhaps we're confronted with a decision in life and we make the wrong one because we don't know God's word well enough. I know someone who got married uh, uh, to a woman who did not have a commitment to the Christian faith. Sort of like Mark Twain and, 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 and Livy. But he thought... I love her enough, I think, I think she'll become a Christian. Things didn't quite work out that way. Perhaps we're confronted with false doctrine about God's truth. I know someone, I knew someone very well when I was growing up who went from first through twelfth grade with a perfect Sunday school attendance record at an evangelical church. She got married, moved to a rural area in Oklahoma where she was by herself a lot during the day, and one day a Jehovah's Witness comes along and knocks on the door. They came in and visited with her and convinced her of their views, their cultic views, including, of course, the notion that Christ is not equal to the Father. To this day, as far as I know, she's still a part of the Jehovah's Witnesses' kingdom movement. Either she was not taught well in her church or what she was taught never penetrated deeply into her when temptation came. Like Eve, she fell. So in verses 1 to 3, Satan's deceptive challenge to the truthfulness of God's word exposes Eve's forgetfulness of it. Well, why did she forget it? Well, we must assume it was because both she, this is important, Both she and Adam were not fulfilling their divine commission of guarding the garden by remembering God's words in Genesis 2, 16 to 17. Remember Romans 5, Adam is blamed for the fall. Both were mutually probably in a process of not fulfilling the task of focusing on God's word. It seems likely then 
that the fall did not happen just when they ate the fruit. That was the climax of it. But it was the consummation of a process that had already set in. Even before uh, Satan had approached Eve, they probably didn't regard God's word as important enough. What happens when Eve forgets God's word? What happens when we forget it in crucial situations? The serpent capitalizes on her confusion about the exact truth of God's word. Notice verses 4 through 6. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. Oh my gosh, there's a direct contradiction of God. For God knows, verse 5, that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her. What's happening? Adam and Eve's confusion about God's word leads them to reject it and to accept Satan's word of deceit. Satan declares, God's word is false. You surely shall not die. By the way, he said, you surely shall not, you, you shall not die, die. He quotes the verse right. He just doesn't believe it. He contradicts it. He knows the word. This is the lie from the beginning and why John 8, refers to Satan as the father of lies. Note that Satan quotes God's word here quite accurately in contrast to Eve. Those in our culture who proclaim God's word is false are showing their spiritual colors. Satan's claim is a half-truth. That is, they don't physically die immediately, do they? Eventually they do, but they do experience spiritual death. This pattern of not believing there will be consequences for our sin is reduplicated every time we sin. This is how Satan deceives us, pulling us in by half-truths. In verse 5, Satan discredits actually the character of God. Look at that again. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This is an indictment, claiming that God was jealously holding them back from their potential and what was theirs by right. Once the barrier of God's word is removed, all hell breaks loose and sin comes. The worldly appeal of the tree draws Eve to it. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes. That the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. She was drawn by the lust of the flesh, as 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says. That is, the tree was good for food. She was drawn by the lust of the eyes. The tree was a delight to the eyes. By the pride of life, the tree was desirable to make one wise. As 1 John 2, 15 to 16 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And who is the one who rules over the world in 1 John when you read the end of it, whole world lies in the power of the devil, the end of chapter 5. These words for delightful and desirable in verse 6, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. The word for delightful is used in Deuteronomy 5 and desirable is used in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, both being translated, you shall not covet. Eve was wrongly desiring to experience this tree. She was coveting it, something God had prohibited. She wanted to know something she shouldn't. C.S. Lewis describes worldliness as the desire to be in the know. Because of our covetous curiosity, we want to experience things which God has prohibited. It was this which was the final appeal to the woman that brought about the fall. At the dinner table when our kids were growing up and they were younger, things would happen during the day uh, that... I'd want to talk to Dorinda, my wife, about, or she might want to talk to me. There might be some things that we didn't want the children really to know about. I mean, it might be um, someone who, who got fired, perhaps, uh, at work and why he got fired. It could be uh, perhaps someone who had been uh, uh, involved in a sexual compromise in a church, perhaps even a pastor, um, and when, when we wanted to talk about these things, we felt like we couldn't wait and we, we wanted to talk about it at the table, we'd either talk pig Latin or broken German. 
And uh, so kids, you know, so they couldn't, they couldn't understand it. And we could kind of get on with our, our conversation a bit and then complete it a little bit later. But when we did that, our children had this insatiable desire to know what we were talking about. They wanted to know. And, I mean, it was just, so we had to really not do it too much because it just gave them such, this, this desire to know. And, and really, they were too young for some of those things. And that's why we were speaking in another language. So, um, that's what covetousness is. Desiring something that we shouldn't be in the know about, that God doesn't want us to be in the know about because... Um, it, it's, it's protection for us. So when the woman forgets God's word, she becomes unable to guard against temptation. The appeal to the physical senses, the taste, the, sou- the, the sight and the sound was overwhelming for her. Adam also accepts Satan's lie and together they fall. By the way, what was he doing all the time? It says, and she gave to the man with her and he ate. Apparently, he was with her all the time. Great priest, Adam was. Here comes this unclean serpent. He should have cast him out. He doesn't do that. What are the effects upon the couple as a result of accepting Satan's false word and rejecting God's truthful word? Verses 7 to 13 tell us. Notice again verse 7. The eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. A little different use of nakedness here. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Because they exchanged God's word of truth for Satan's word of deceit, their relationship with God and with one another becomes distorted with regard to the effect uh, on their relationship with God. There was fear rather than fellowship. They're hiding now because they were alienated from him. In fact, when it says he came in the cool of the day, the literal translation, he came in the spirit of the day. Some think that this is the first reference to God coming in judgment on the day of the Lord. And he first comes right there in judgment on Adam and Eve. That would have been a scary thing. I still remember watching the Hanna-Barbera cartoon of what happens. It was with my kids. When Adam and Eve sins and God comes into the garden, there was lightning and there was thunder. Uh, Actually, probably a pretty good rendition um, of what may have happened because we know the day of the Lord coming in judgment involved storm theophanies, God's presence coming in judgment. So there was fear rather than fellowship with regard to their effect on the relationship with each other. Concealment rather than communication. Does that characterize our relationships, those of us who are married? Concealment rather than communication? That's what verse 7 says. The eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Only deceived people could think that skimpy clothes could cover massive sin or that sin could be hidden from the omniscient God. There was separation rather than unity. A communication breakdown, some have said, results in a marital breakup. There was falsehood rather than honesty. Adam falsely blames Eve when God confronts him. and said, well, the woman gave it to me. He confronts the woman, well, it's the devil's fault. Both of them ultimately are trying to say, I'm really not culpable. They're really not telling the truth. The two have come to reflect the serpent's image and not speaking the truth. He's accomplished his goal. Notice as in the earlier case of Satan that the woman refers to only God, not the Lord God. Notice when she says in verse 13, um, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. There was toil rather than dominion. Verses 17 to 19, as we saw it read, talks about how Adam will now toil with the sweat of his brow rather than ruling in the way he should have over the earth. Death rather than life, he'll return to the dust of the earth. 
How did the above characteristic of Adam and Eve's distorted relationship compare with our present marriage relationships? Is there concealment rather than communication? A lack of openness. So we're not fully in open unity in all levels of communication. Is there separation rather than unity? Falsehood rather than honesty? May God give us grace not to reflect the serpent, but to reflect God and his word. So what we have found so far is when we don't remember God's word, remember that was our purpose, to remember God's word, to serve in, uh, him as a faithful priest and to become one that way. When they don't remember God's word, they end up accepting Satan's word and alienating themselves from God and one another, being divided from one another. And that happens to us as well. And it happens in other relationships besides marriage. What should we do in light of this? Be radically committed to God's word in our marriages. We should help one another in whatever way we can to remember God's word. So we can slowly but surely think God's thoughts after him, speak those things pleasing to him, and do those things pleasing to him. That should be one of the grand goals of our marriage relationship in order that we may become one increasingly. But it is a principle true in other areas as well. How does this this Genesis narrative relate to the New Testament, to Jesus and his church? Remember that Eden was like a temple. Jesus comes as the last Adam. Fulfilling the commission which the first Adam was to fulfill, but did not. You remember the temptation in Luke 4. We're not going to read it because we're going to get to Ephesians in a moment. But I think we should see how Jesus relates to the last Adam. Luke ends his genealogy in Luke 3. He turns it in a reverse way uh, uh, from Matthew. Matthew begins early in the Old Testament and, and comes up to the present with Jesus. Luke turns it the other way and begins in the present with Jesus' parents, and ends with this, Adam, the son of God. The very next verse, Luke 4, 1. And the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. Do you remember the temptations? Turn the stone, turn these stones into bread because you're hungry. An attempt to do something independent of God, to take things in his own hands. The lust of the flesh. Lust of food, the same thing happened with Eve, right? Desirable to eat. The other one was, remember the other temptation, jump off the pinnacle of the temple and your angels will bear you up. Well, if he'd done that, it would have been spectacular. Everybody in Jerusalem would have seen it, or many people would have, and he would have been immediately proclaimed Messiah, but not in God's timing, because he had to die first and suffer for our sins. That's the temptation of the eyes, to be seen by all immediately as the Son of God. The pride of life. Eve wanted to possess that wisdom that she thought God was holding her back from. The devil offers to Christ all the possessions of the earth if he'll but serve the devil. Jesus flawlessly does not give in to any of the temptations. In fact, to each one of them, he quotes scripture. Of course, the devil quotes scripture as well. But uh, Christ outduels him. And actually, that's the beginning, the feet of the devil right there. The rest, that's sort of D-Day for Jesus. Christ's death and resurrection is V-Day. Now for us, the death and resurrection is D-Day. And our final resurrection is V-Day because we follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Well... When we don't remember God's word, we end up accepting Satan's word and alienating ourselves from God and one another and losing our unity. In this case, this is what happens in marriage, and it can happen among believers in general, since not only is this the first marriage, it's the first covenant community as well. Now we need to go to how this relates to husbands and wives in the New Testament. So turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians. How does this, what we've seen about marriage in 
Genesis. That the purpose of marriage is to help one another serve God by remembering his word, that unity would come about. How does it relate that Christ finally does what Adam and Eve should have done? How does that relate to marriage in the New Testament? Well, in Ephesians 5, we have a big section on marriage. It begins in verse 22 and ends in verse 33 of Ephesians 5. All I can do is give a thumbnail sketch of what's become an explosively debated text in our culture. For any of you who uh, uh, recall what's in this passage. But before we look at it, we've got to remember the thrust of the whole book of Ephesians is how Christ has begun to bring unity about in the alienated creation. He's called God's, quote, household manager. A thief comes into the household, causes it to be in disarray, i.e. the devil. Christ comes back as the last Adam. He begins to put it all together again. Ephesians 1.10 says Christ came up to, he came to sum up all things in himself. And it actually calls him a household manager in the preceding verse. He's begun to put the pieces of the fragmented household of God's creation back together again. And the reason here that Paul first addresses most extensively wives and husbands, but then in chapter 6, children and parents, and then slaves and masters, which quite frankly does overlap to a significant degree with employers and employees. I mean, uh, this is uh, not uh, Old South slavery in the, in the ancient world. Well, parts of it were criminals, uh, people defeated in the war. Uh, there was some kind of overlap there. But a lot of people would voluntarily go into slavery to uh, uh, raise their educational level, to raise their economic level. So there are some overlaps here with the employer-employee relationship. But all these are three relationships, if you talk to people today, where we have problems. Parents and children, husbands and wives, employers, employees. There's alienation still, isn't there? Paul addresses these parts of the ancient household to show how Christ, God's household manager, has begun to bring unity into the household again and how he's actually um, continuing to do so. He first addresses husbands. Let's, let's, let's look at the... Uh, uh, he first addresses wives in verses 22 to 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. He himself being savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be the, to their husbands and everything. One of the things that stands out here is that the husband-wife relationship is a reflection of the Christ-church relationship. What causes a lot of people to explosively debate this text, of course, is that the wife is to be subject to the husband. And uh, I think in that regard, I only want to qualify what that means in two ways. First of all, her relationship to her husband is summarized in verse 33. Look at it with me. Nevertheless, that each individual among you also love his own wife as, even as himself. And now the wife. And let, so, the, so the passage ends as it begins, addressing the wife. And let the wife see to it that she fear her husband. This idea of subjection is summarized as fear, as faith. I think the idea of subjection in this passage is the wife is to trust in the guidance of the husband. I think that is the idea. As the church trusts in the guidance of Christ. We, our main uh, relationship to Christ is explained by faith. Yes, do we subject ourselves to him? Of course. But trusting in him to guide our lives. The second thing I want to say about the wife's subjection uh, and submission to the husband is that once we see what the husband's authority and headship is, beginning in verses 25 and following, that it elicits a desire for a wife to want to be guided by such a person because it's not a domineering kind of authority. It's an authority that gives and thinks of the wife before the husband. So as we look at this, uh, let's begin with the husband. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. There it is. The husband is to model the death of Christ, to sacrifice himself for his wife. I remember when I was engaged, 
to be married, someone asked me, are you willing to sacrifice yourself for Dorinda? I said, oh, sure. He said, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm taking that literally, he said. This is not just, oh, um, you, want, you want to go to this movie? Uh, I want to go to that one. Okay, let, you know, let's go to that movie. Uh, I'll, I'll do what you want. No. Would you be willing to die for your wife? I kind of gulped. And I said, yeah. You know, and that's uh, a huge, huge commitment. This is an amazing statement. This is, we're to follow Christ throughout this passage. It's, it's key. What we do in the husband-wife relationship reflects Christ and the church. That's why it's an important relationship. In fact, what we're going to get to, and I want to anticipate, the husband and wife relationship is actually a play performed on the stage for the unbelieving world to watch. And as the world watches weird things like a wife trusting the guidance of a husband who sometimes bumbles along, and as the world sees a husband sacrificing for his wife, it's supposed to point to what Christ has done for the church, sacrificed himself for her, and how the church is to respond in faith. And when Christians mess it up, one of the main ways that we can witness to the world in a lifestyle witness is blunted. The force of it is blunted. But it goes on in verse 25. Verse 26, why did Christ give himself for the church? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, that phrase, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, comes from Ezekiel 16 and verse 9. Again, as I've said before, if my wife were here, she'd say, okay, big deal. So what difference does that make? Well... That's a description of how God began to enter into a marriage relationship with Israel. And it it goes on and talks about how Israel became a whore and began to have spiritual intercourse with with idols and how how Israel was judged for uh, breaking her marriage vows to the Lord. Now what's happening? There's a new Israel. And Jesus is now taking the role of Yahweh, the Lord, and he is the one. Here we go again. I'm going to cleanse my church by the washing of water. And it takes this time. This time it's, it's really going to work. And by the way, washing of water with what? Notice, notice again, verse 26, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. The word. Some think this is just a baptismal formula. No, I think it's more against the background of uh, Ezekiel 16. Baptism wasn't in mind there. Well, but there's a greater purpose than Christ sanctifying the church by cleansing her with the word. And it's verse 27 that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and Blameless. So at the end of the age, his purpose is to present his bride beautifully white, as we saw illustrated in this uh, marriage yesterday. Um, All marriages, as we're going to see, point to the relationship of Christ and the church. Now, verse 28. So husbands also ought to love their own wives. Now that word so is very important. Here's a way to translate it. In the same manner, for those of you who know Greek, it's hutos. In the same manner, husbands ought to love their own wives. Well, you've got to go to the preceding verses to say, in what manner? In the manner, first, of sacrificing yourself, verse 25. In the manner of sanctifying, setting your wife apart, cleansing her with the word. That should not surprise us in the light of the purpose of marriage in Genesis 2. That the purpose is to be faithful servants of God by remembering God's word. And to the degree that that happens, to that degree, unity comes about. And then he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Ultimately, that she would be holy and blameless. So, 
the wife's sanctification is of uppermost concern to the husband, following how Christ relates to the church in the same manner. But he goes on in verse 28. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their, um, um, as their own bodies. Why is their own bodies? Because it's very clear that in the preceding verse, Christ, the goal is to bring the church as a bride to present it to himself and that they would be in an intimate relationship, unified, as we saw in Genesis. So husbands, in the same manner, ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. That's amazing. Why is that amazing? Because this is an allusion to Jesus' teaching. In Matthew, in Mark, you remember the statement? The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the versions is to love his neighbor as himself. This is an illusion. In the end of verse 28, he who loves his own wife loves himself. Our dearest neighbor, if we are husbands, our dearest and closest friend and neighbor is our wife. And that's the point that Paul is making here. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. This is amazing. It's very unusual. I think when people think of husbands, men, kind of rougher people, but listen to the description that Paul has in verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. One of my friends has said, you know, if you're really one with your wife and you're not treating her rightly, let me ask you a question, he said. Would you ever get a hammer and just put your hand down and start going wham, 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 wham? No, you wouldn't do that. When you mistreat your wife in whatever way, you're hurting yourself because you're one. But this phrase goes on. It says, notice verse 29 with me. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. That word for nourish is used a lot of times, like over 15 times in the Old Testament. In Greek, to refer to bringing up children from the earliest age to the point where uh, they're ready to go out on their own. It assumes that the parents are so close to their children, they know their needs, and they are able to meet those needs because they're so close to their children. And likewise, that word, uh, not only to uh, nourish, but to cherish, it's not used much. A couple of the times it refers to a mother bird sitting on her little newborn chicks or even on eggs. She is close to them, so close. She knows their needs to meet their needs as newborn. She reorganizes her life around their needs. That's what it's saying about the husband. It's amazing. The husband is to reorganize his life to the extent that he needs to, to know the needs of his wife. It's amazing. Then at the end of verse 29 just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. It goes back, why do we do this? Because this is what Christ does. We are uh, reflecting him. So husbands loves, love wives in order to reflect how Christ loves the church. Now Genesis 2.24 is quoted. Look at verse 31. Whoa! For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is stated in relation to the husband's initiating activity of leaving and then cleaving. The ultimate goal of husbands, as I've said, is loving their wives to show forth to the world how Christ has loved the church. We've seen again and again, whether it's with the wife in relation to the husband or the husband uh, and the description of his relation to the wife, it's to reflect how Christ relates to the church and the church to Christ. But Paul says something weird now. Because verse 31, just as in Genesis, it refers to husbands and wives, right? For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother. By the way, remember, for what cause? For the cause of serving God, learning his word, and becoming one. 
And that background is still in mind here. But all of a sudden, it sounds like, oh, this doesn't relate to Christ in the church. Look at verse 32. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. It sounds like he's not talking about husbands and wives. Now, this word mystery here is used throughout the New Testament to refer to um, Old Testament passages that are better understood in the light of the New Testament and how it's fulfilled in Christ. The fact that Paul bases the right behavior of husbands and wives in the creation and before the sinful fall of Adam and Eve shows that their roles are not determined by the passing trends or fads of culture. Before I get to the mystery, I want to mention this. These roles are rooted in the fabric of the pre-fall created order. Today, the gay movement is attempting to refine those traditional roles, but that's built into the fabric of creation. And many are trying to revise the roles that Paul talks about between how the wife is to faithfully trust in the husband's guidance. They're trying to revise that. But this is something that will be in force until Christ returns. Why? Because it is a redemptive historical play that the husband and wife are doing. When he, unusually in this culture, really sacrifices for the wife, and the wife trusts in his guidance, that's unusual. And it points people in a lifestyle way to the gospel, what Christ has done for us to sacrifice for us, and how the church is to respond in faith. But this mystery, what is this mystery? Well, It's this, that every time a man left his mother and cleaved to his wife and they became one, it was ultimately, Paul says, to indicate the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, some will say, well, that's a brand new interpretation. You can't find that in Genesis or anywhere. But in fact, for example, in Isaiah 62, it talks in verses 1 to 5 about how in the end time, God will marry his bride, Israel, again. And God's first marriage relationship with Israel and his final end-time marriage relationship with Israel, his people, his covenant community, that relationship is one in which his people will trust in him. But both those relationships, both when Israel first became a wife and then went a whoring, And then at the end time, when God will marry his people again, it's all based back on Genesis 2. God's relationship and his marriage with Israel is based on that first marriage relationship. What's happened in Ephesians is you've got to plug Christ in. It's a pretty high view. Christ takes the place of God. And he's identified with God. What should a couple do who feel like they're no longer in love? The world says, don't be hypocritical. Don't act like you love someone when you don't feel like it. That's the epitome of hypocrisy. God says, both should be committed to the roles of initiating love and trusting. Both should be faithful in carrying out these roles, even when they don't feel like it. It's part of their covenantal commitment. Remember I said marriage is a covenant. You can find that in Genesis 2, I think. The world says it's hypocritical. To act in a way you really you don't really feel is, is seen as hypocrisy. God's word says it's an expression of faith to do what com- God commands us to do, even when we don't feel like it. When husbands and wives are faithful to their callings, even when they don't feel like it, one of the results is a rekindling of love, I believe. I, I have a passage here that I would like to talk about with that, in that regard, but I just don't have time. The burden is actually placed on the husband to initiate love continually in order that feelings be revived on the wife's part. John Calvin, I haven't mentioned Calvin yet. Carl has. I've got to mention Calvin. He says, quote, There will be no willing subjection by the wife that is not preceded by the sacrifice of the husband. The idea is that the husband's initiating sacrifice is to cause a willing up of faithful love toward the husband by the wife. 
The point of this passage then, of quoting Genesis chapter 2, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This is a statement not just about Adam and Eve, but it is a statement about how throughout Old Testament history, whenever a man left his wife, left his, his, his family, and became one, cleaved to his wife, and became one with her, Paul said it was a, it's a picture all, all the time. In the Old Testament, a picture of how God and his people will be married in the end time. And Paul moves that a little further in terms of progressive revelation, a picture of how God's Messiah, Christ, and his people will be one. So when you and I, those of us who are married, when we come together as husband and wife and try to serve the Lord by helping one another remember God's word so we can see all of life through the lens of God's perspective, as we become one that way, ultimately, it also is a reflection of Christ in the church. I pray that we will be those who realize that one of the greatest lifestyle evangelical tools we have is marriage. There are many others, but that is one of them. If you're married to an unbelieving maid or you're not married at all, you might feel the message this evening has no relevance for you. But remember that earthly marriage is only a foreshadowing of that great marriage that will occur in the new heaven and the new earth between Christ and all of his people. Are we making ourselves ready for that?